This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. Believing that you have immunity from wild infection is not a smart move at all. You need to have been repeatedly infected or repeatedly exposed to a vaccine to get a good immune response. That was Nicolas Crisp, the official in charge of South Africa's response to the COVID-19 pandemic on growing concerns that the fifth wave of infections is rising. Details coming up. Also, a second Ebola patient has died in the DRC. These stories and more on African News Tonight. But first, our top story. Al-Qaeda-linked militants in Mali say they have captured at least one Russian mercenary from the Wagner Group, a private military company with alleged links to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Annie Reisenberg reports from Bamako. Extremists linked to Al-Qaeda say in a statement they have abducted at least one Russian mercenary who they describe as a soldier of Russian Wagner forces. An Arabic version of the group's statement claimed they abducted one Russian fighter, who they called a criminal, while the French version said they had taken more than one. The statement also claims that Wagner forces took part in an operation in Mora, Mali, which it says killed hundreds of innocents. Several countries have accused Mali's military government of working with forces from the Wagner Group, a shadowy private company that has provided Russian mercenaries to several countries, including Libya, Syria, and the Central African Republic. The Malian government denies any links with the Wagner Group, saying it only works with official Russian trainers. The Mora military operation mentioned in the extremist statement was a subject of a report by Human Rights Watch. The report quoted witnesses who said white soldiers working with the Malian army killed 300 civilian men, some of them suspected Islamist fighters, during a five-day operation. On Saturday, the French army released a drone surveillance video, which they say shows mercenaries burying bodies in the sand near Gosi, Mali, where the French army withdrew from a military base last week. Similar video circulated on Twitter two days earlier and accused French forces of killing the people seen in the video. Speaking to AFP, the French military said the mercenaries staged the mass grave to tarnish the image of France. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. A second Ebola patient has died in northwestern Democratic Republic of Congo. The World Health Organization reported the first patient died in an Ebola treatment center on April 21st. The second fatality was the 25-year-old sister-in-law. At least 145 people came into contact with the confirmed cases and Reuters reported their health is being closely monitored. The DRC has seen 13 previous outbreaks of Ebola, including one in 2018 that killed nearly 2,300 people. The country's equatorial forests are a natural reservoir for the Ebola virus, which was discovered near the Ebola River in northern Congo in 1976. With a sudden spike in cases, scientists suspect a fifth wave of COVID-19 has started in South Africa. Just a few weeks ago, health officials were recording less than a 1,000 new cases a day. That figures now more than 4,000 a day. 
Almost 4 million people have been infected so far in South Africa with more than 100,000 deaths. The highest rates on the continent, Darren Taylor reports. The official in charge of South Africa's response to the pandemic, Health Department Deputy Director General Nicholas Crisp, is watching what he calls flames starting in communities across the country. These, he says, are driven by several sub-variants of Omicron, the highly infectious variant first detected in South Africa in October 2021. What we are seeing in the concentration of the numbers over the last 14 days is that it's very much in the urban areas. It may well be just a spike as a result of people moving around over the Easter weekend, and it may well be driven by some different behavioural characteristics of the BA.4. But it is very early, very... Dr. Crisp says even though Omicron and its cousins, including BA.4, are less virulent than other strains of COVID-19, they still carry potential to cause grievous harm. He's very concerned that less than a third of people eligible for vaccination in South Africa have been jabbed. Believing that you have immunity from wild infection is not a smart move at all. You need to have been repeatedly infected or repeatedly exposed to a vaccine to get a good immune response. You don't need only antibodies. You also need a cellular response. And to do that, your body needs the memory of repeated exposures. Crisp urges people to get vaccinated, emphasizing that his department has more than enough shots in stock. Officials were recently forced to destroy 90,000 expired doses of Pfizer vaccine. According to CRISP, 7 million doses donated by the U.S. government are facing the same fate in June, July and August. The vaccines were delivered with somewhere between 7 and 9 months of fridge life at minus 70 and the clock wears down on that. If we don't use it, you can't prolong its lifespan once it's past its expiry date. He urges South Africans to show respect to themselves, to others, and to the American taxpayers who paid for the jabs by getting vaccinated as soon as possible. You know, this is a donation. It's really hard to tell a donor, thank you very much, but we've had to dump all your vaccine because our people didn't think it was necessary to get protected. And that will be a crying shame if, in fact, we do get an aggressive wave and even more waves which may come and people could have protected themselves. So one doesn't wait until you're in a battle to start arming yourself. You arm yourself before you get in that situation. And it's easy to arm yourself by getting vaccinated now. Crisp says it's tragic that relatively few in South Africa are getting jabbed in a country where COVID-19 has claimed so many lives. For VOA News... I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. With the situation in Sudan stagnant, Fadi El-Kadi, the official spokesman for the UN mission, said, Unita Mas has urged the ruling junta to promote the political process, including an end to violence, release political detainees, and firmly commit to phasing out the country's emergency status. But Joseph Siegel, director of research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, told VOA senior analyst Mohammed Al Shanawi that international pressure is badly needed on coup leaders to commit to a democratic transition. 
the coup leaders are trying to create the impression, international community, that there are no alternatives other than the military government in Sudan. In effect, you know, they're trying to normalize this idea that military and government and in Sudan is the only way forward. You know, and this, of course, is something that the protesters are trying to change. And as we have seen, not just in the last couple of years, but over the last couple of decades, that military rule in Sudan has been disastrous for the country in terms of its economic standing. And the country uh, on its current trajectory faces only more and deepening crisis and instability. So, you know, this latest threat against UNITAM, you know, it symbolizes that the junta feels emboldened. They're trying to put pressure on international actors to go along with the military's plan to hold on to power. And so I think uh, absolutely the only way things are going to change is if the international community pushes back. And they signal very clearly, formally, to the junta that they won't be recognized, that there isn't going to be any substantial international investment in Sudan until the military resumes the democratic process and brings the civilians back in so that we can have the prospect for a civilian-led government in Sudan. So I think we're very much at a, another point where the, there's, a, there's a test for the international actors about how committed they are to the democratic process in Sudan and for that matter to the stabilization of Sudan. But with the continued popular protests, the military rulers in Sudan are continuing their grip on power regardless of the pressure from the IMF, World Bank, US. What's the way out then? Well, I think it is important to recognize that there are continuing protests in Sudan. The military government is widely despised, and they have lost all trust with the population once they reneged on their agreement to facilitate a transition to a civilian-led government. So they've lost the trust of the population. And moreover, there's no way out for the military. They're effectively on a sinking ship because of the huge economic crisis that Sudan faces something that is going to require a lot of international support. And that international support is not going to be forthcoming until there's a credible technocratic-led civilian government in Sudan. So I think the way out is for that message to be clearly communicated to the junta and for the junta to be led to reaccept the uh, reestablished civilian-led democratic transition and resuming and reverting to the military's traditional roles, which are to provide security for the country and and for citizens uh, in Sudan. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. The number of children facing severe drought across the Horn of Africa has jumped 40% in just two months. UNICEF's spokesperson, Malin Jensen, in Nairobi, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam the loss of cattle and crops and higher prices have combined to cause severe acute malnutrition among more than 1.7 million children. So this is a three-year drought, three years of failed rains, and the worry is that the fourth year is going to fail as well. So children are really teetering on the brink, and so are their families. So we can see that the needs are becoming increasingly dire. Children running out of food, nutrition, clean water, and people are starting to move to try and find that, especially because their cattle 
have been lost to the drought. If you were to put our audience in the place of these kinds of families you're talking about, what are they doing? Are they having to leave their huts for areas where there's more rainfall or what are they doing? So I was in Somalia uh, some weeks ago and basically the story we're hearing from families is that they were they're doing okay years ago because they had the cattle, um, they could support their children, they had crops, they were going about their lives and they had an income. And then three years, there's a slow moving oncoming disaster, if you will, three years of no rain. And we can see, I think it's about 2 million animals that have died already. People were telling us that, you know, they had 150 cattle, then they lost 50, they lost another 20. One woman said that she had been able to sell 20 and the rest had died. And then she was saying that they basically saw other other people moving. So she grabbed her five children, one remaining donkey, and they moved towards a place called Dolo in Somalia. That's right on the border of Ethiopia. And it was exactly what you're saying. They're chasing water. They're chasing a substance of where they can and uh, have a living and, and save their children. But the more people contrigating in one specific area. And that's what we were told is that there was water when they got there. But now, because more and more people are coming in, there isn't much more water. That is a catastrophe. What we're talking about too is it really is an impact of climate change, the weather Mm -hmm. pattern. But then you add to that two years of COVID restrictions. And this is an area of, of conflict, of pockets of conflicts where people have already been insecure. And then add one more layer of the horror that we're seeing in Ukraine that's having the ripple effect. So yeah. you've got what? You've got climate change, COVID, conflict, the three C's, I guess. And, three C's. And, yeah. and now this, and now the Ukraine war. Yeah. And again, the level of suffering both in Ukraine, but also that's, that's hitting the shores, if you will, of the Horn of Africa at a time where people are really in their knees because they have lost everything. The communities we went to speak with were basically sitting in shelters with sticks and a little bit of cloth over it. One woman took out pot, a pan, a cup, and that was that was her worldly possessions. Will children die? We are we're very, very nervous that we're headed in the direction of that. But we're also very hopeful that if we come together, as we've done before as an international community, that we can prevent the worst. And that's why we're saying right now is the time to act. We know what it takes to really step up the efforts of getting more nutrition for children, to getting access to water. We have 1.7 million children who are suffering from severe acute malnutrition. And the worry is that the number is gonna go up to 2 million. But if we step up now, really put the shoulder to the task and push in the same direction, we feel that the worst can be prevented. That was UNICEF spokesperson Marlene Jensen in Nairobi speaking by phone with VOA's Carol Van Dam. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, one of the world's largest exporters of wheat, has led to bread prices soaring in importing countries like Zimbabwe. The Grain Millers Association of Zimbabwe has warned of possible braid shortages in the country after Ukraine was forced to suspend shipping. Columbus Mavunga reports from Harare, Zimbabwe. Christian Gayumba is one of many citizens feeling the pinch 
of rising prices in Zimbabwe. She can't afford to buy bread for her four dependents on her salary of less than $250 a month because a loaf now costs more than $2. She says she cooks a bland, thin porridge three times a day and rarely serves rice as it is now expensive too. This price increase of bread has reduced me to, to nothing, my brother. I don't think I'm still a, a, the, the mother figure, the breadwinner for, for my family because I'm failing to provide. Each and every morning they wake up crying for porridge, they wake up crying for, for, for bread. The Grain Millers Association of Zimbabwe, which imports grain, blames the Russia-Ukraine conflict for the steep climb in prices. The two countries account for 65% of Zimbabwe's wheat imports. And suddenly we woke up with the world without, its, uh, without that supply levels. Now we are making efforts to see how best we can get from other countries. Australia, there's issue of floods and are, which affected the agriculture. We are now pushing towards getting uh, wheat from Canada and other countries. Musarana says a consignment of Zimbabwe's wheat has been stuck in the embattled Ukrainian city of Mariupol for weeks now. Zimbabwe Agricultural Society is a group responsible for promoting agricultural development in the country. It sees some opportunity in the current wheat shortages the country is facing. And I think this is an opportune time for, for our farmers to produce more, for the government and the private sector to work together hand in hand to support farmers who want to go into wheat production. And thank God we've been having some uh, late uh, uh, rainfalls, which have also helped in land preparations. That would certainly be good news for people like Kayumba, who cannot buy bread now because it's too expensive. Many of the country's farm fields are currently full of corn. Matibiri said if the shift to wheat production succeeds, Zimbabwe can export wheat to the region and get some much-needed foreign currency. Columbus Mavungam for VOA News, Harare, Zimbabwe. Authorities in Cameroon say Anglophone separatists have joined forces with Nigerian militants to shut down nearly all trade across the two countries' border. Cameroon depends on Nigeria for 70% of basic commodities and most of them are transported across the land border. Authorities say about 90% of trade has been halted as militants from both sides attack and abduct merchants. Moki Edwin Kenzeka reports from Yaoundé. Njume Peter Ambang is a lawmaker from Cameroon's restive southwest region on the border with Nigeria. He says fighters within the past two months have taken control of many businesses, including palm oil plantations in Dian a division in the southwest region. Maritime uh, business has collapsed. The oil business have all collapsed. Bamboo fields have been seized by the separatists. They harvest the crops, the meal, and sell. These guys are working with area boys in the Nigeria. Ambang was speaking in the Indian capital, Mondemba, Sunday, during a meeting to plead with local fighters to drop their guns and stop harassing merchants. Cameroon's military says several hundred fighters chased from towns and villages during raids by government troops relocated to the border with Nigeria. The military says the fighters have killed at least 
two dozen merchants and abducted scores of others for ransom since January. Capo Daniel is Deputy Defense Chief of the Ambazonian Defense Forces, or ADF, one of the largest separatist groups in Cameroon. He says many fighters have been deployed to the border with Nigeria, but denies they fled intensive fighting with Cameroonian government troops. Daniel says Cameroon's separatists collaborate with Nigeria's Eastern Security Network of the Indigenous People of Biafra, IPOB, a secessionist group that advocates for the creation of an independent state in eastern Nigeria. Daniel says the Ambazonia and Biafra groups are collaborating to help each other and undermine government control of the border area. We want to put in place our own security network to regulate trade and to control the movement of goods and persons between Biafra and Ambazonia. We will no longer allow Cameroon and Nigerian to enforce their law in the border between Biafra and Ambazonia. We will put an end to the exploitation of the Biafran people as well as the Ambazonian people as we work in alliance with our counterpart across the border in Biafra land. Daniel says the ADF and IPOB have been able to stop both Cameroon and Nigeria from collecting revenue from the sales of basic commodities and cash crops, including rice, maize, tubers, plantain and cocoa in border localities. He also says fighters are punishing merchants who collaborate with the two governments by paying taxes or agreeing to be escorted by government troops. Nigeria and Cameroon have promised to crush all separatists who do not surrender. The two countries' governments announced in February 2021 that they would work together to combat separatist and armed groups. Cameroon this week said it deployed more troops to the border to protect civilians, merchants, and their goods. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baru, thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America. Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's Newsmaker Interview Program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com slash PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. 
Just send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash VOA or on Twitter at VOA. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC.